All right, as we come to Job chapter 22, here's a, again a quick outline of the book of Job. The first couple of chapters sets the stage. Job is uh, one of the greatest men, if not the greatest of the East, and he was upright and blameless, feared God, shunned evil. He was very wealthy, had a big family, and then he lost everything. And we recognize that in the first couple of chapters that there is the heavenly scene going on where Satan uh, is accusing uh, the fact that Job is serving God just because God is blessing him. But if he's, if he's stripped of everything, then he'll curse God to his face. And of course, Job has hung strong, hasn't he? He stayed strong in his faith throughout all of this. And the bulk of the book are these conversations that are going on between Job and his three friends, uh, comforters, uh, those that have come there to uh, really give their theological opinion, which is unfortunately off. And they felt that Job was uh, suffering because he was wicked, because of sin in his life. And we know, of course, from the beginning of the book that that's not the case. And so it's round and round we go. We've uh, uh, looked at Job wishing he'd never been born. And then the first round of speeches where his three friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are each taking a turn to uh, give their opinion as to what's going on and what Job needs to do. And um, then Job responds to each one of those. And so you've got round one, round two, and we've come today to round three. And then next week, we'll hear from a fourth individual named Elihu. And then as we get to chapter 38, God speaks. And uh, the whole book is good, but that's where it really gets really good when you hear, hear from God. And then, of course, the epilogue where Job is restored and his friends are, are shown to be wrong in, um, I think, the premise of what they're saying. There's a, there is a lot of truth in what they're saying. It just doesn't apply to Job's situation. So that's one of the things to keep in mind as we go through. So we're looking at the third round of speeches. And as we come to this, we see it a little in a little bit different format. Usually Job's friends would speak with Job responding after each one. But here only Eliphaz and Bildad speak. Zophar doesn't talk at all. It's like Zophar's done. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then Job, a, a lot of what we're going to look at today is dedicated to Job. It's like his closing arguments, and he comes to the end, and he's basically through talking the way he's been talking. He'll speak a couple of things in response to what God says, but uh, this is basically the end of, of the dialogue section as they're going back and forth. That is Job and his three friends. And so as we look at this third round, uh, we have Eliphaz speaking, Job replying, Bildad just saying a, a, a few sentences, and then the remainder is all Job after that. So let's go ahead and jump into Eliphaz's third speech as we look at chapter 22, beginning from verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, can a man be profitable to God? though he who is wise may be profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? Is it because of your fear of him that he corrects you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your wickedness great and your iniquity without end? <laughs> it's like he can't contain himself, you know? Is it any profit? Do you think you please God by by uh, being blameless and righteous before him. And if that's the case, then how come he's condemning you like he is? It's obviously your wickedness that is doing all of this, that your wickedness is so great. And then interestingly enough, beginning from verse six, it's like Eliphaz takes the liberty of accusing him of doing a number of things, starting from verse six. 
For you have taken pledges from your brother for no reason and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have not given the weary water to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. But the mighty man possessed the land and the honorable man dwelt in it. You have sent widows away empty and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you and sudden fear troubles you or darkness so that you cannot see and an abundance of water covers you. Notice the accusations. Taken pledges, stripped the naked, not helped the weary, the thirsty, or the hungry, mistreated the widow and the orphan. This is the reason that you're suffering. And Eliphaz goes on to say, God sees what you're doing, though you think he doesn't. And if you just get your life right with God, everything will go okay. Now, check out verse 21 as he goes into that. Now, acquaint yourself with him and be at peace. Thereby, goodwill will come to you. Receive, please, instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be built up. You will remove iniquity far from your tents. Now, there is a lot of truth in what he's saying right there. It just doesn't apply to Job. I mean, there's a lot of truth. If you haven't come to the Lord or if you've walked away from the Lord, then if you return to him, yeah, there's going to be good that's going to come to your life. It's not a prosperity doctrine. It's not like you're going to be rich, but you're going to know you've got your life right with God and there's going to be peace that comes into your life by returning to him and receiving instruction, being obedient to his word, laying up his word in your heart. So there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? It's just, again, missing the mark when it comes to Job because Job isn't away from the Lord. He hasn't sinned and this isn't why this tragedy is coming upon him. So good truth there, just unfortunately uh, missing the mark as it goes for Job. So Job responds in chapter 23, and Job answered and said, even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Oh, I would present my case before God. I know God would deliver me once he heard me, but the problem is, is I can't find him. He's nowhere to be found. But if only I could present my case, I know he would agree. Verse eight, look, I go forward, but he's not there and backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He knows the way that I take. God knows everything about us. He knows obviously the end from the beginning but guys, he's well acquainted with us and he's well acquainted with all our ways, not just the things we do, but what's going on inside of our heart. And he makes mention in verse 10, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. The illustration is striking because when you test gold, when you put gold through the fire, 
it's going to burn off the impurities. And what's going to come forth is something that's much more valuable than what went in. And so the same thing is true when you or I go through trials. We go through those things and typically what happens is the trial is going to burn off the impurities in our life. There's gonna be some things in our lives that we recognize are not quite right and we need to get right. And what comes forth is a faith that really brings honor then to God, a lifestyle that will really honor him. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter one, as he was speaking about our common salvation, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials that we go through can bring about a good end. You know, again, everything is different. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes, sometimes it is the, the chastening, corrective hand of God upon our lives. Sometimes we deserve what's coming to us because we've made some really foolish choices. But God has a way of using the trials that come into our life and refine our faith so that it brings glory and honor to the Lord. And it's what we do, I think, in the midst of those trials. Am I going to turn away from God when the trial hits or am I going to come to God? I talked about this before, but sometimes one of the best things we can do is ask God, what do you want me to get out of this certain situation that I'm going through? And, and again, even if it's something that maybe is not justified in our lives, usually there's always some kind of a, a lesson that can be learned and, and a growth period that can take place as we come to the Lord and are just transparent with him. And so Job knows when he goes through what he's going through, after he's tested and he's gone through these fires, he knows he's gonna come forth as gold. And notice in verse 12, I've not departed from his commandments, the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. This is good, we're gonna talk about it. But think about this for a moment. When we talk about treasuring God's word, what are we referring to? This right here, right? Job is believed to be the earliest book in the Bible. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting, isn't it? So you just kind of factor that in and think of his relationship with God. And remember, he was what? He was blameless and upright, feared God and shunned evil. How did he know all that? How did Abraham know all of that? How did Noah know all that? You know, you go back and yeah, we've got the law, the old covenant codified through the hand of Moses, but realize that all of that was known. A lot of it was practiced prior to the days of Moses. And so it's kind of interesting just to think about that and put ourselves in the days of Job. And again, it's, it's hard to nail it down exactly, but it's believed to be somewhere around the days of Abraham to Moses, maybe before Abraham, maybe after Jacob, uh, somewhere in that area. It's hard to nail down, but again, that just based on the stuff that's going on in here, that's the time, and it's not like they were packing a Bible like we are today. And so his relationship, his knowledge of God and God's ways, he treasured. That's the, the point we want to build on right here. Treasuring the words of his mouth more than nece necessary food. When Satan came to Jesus and he was being tempted in the wilderness, and of course he'd been fasting for 40 days, he said, if you're the son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. Do you remember what he said? It is written, absolutely. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
Bread, yeah, it's going to fill my stomach, but God's word, it's going to fill my soul. It's going to fill my spirit. You know, when you think about it, the food that we eat, it's what gives us strength. We are what we eat, right? It's the fuel that we put into our bodies. And we are what we eat physically. We're also what we eat spiritually. And so, question, are we treasuring God's word more than our necessary food? And you think about it, you know, if the only time that I cracked open the Bible or we cracked open the Bible was on Sunday mornings, Think how hungry we would get spiritually throughout the week. Think if the only food you ate was the meal you're gonna have after church today, and then you didn't eat all week long until you came back to church next week, and you come back to church and we're not having lunch, we just have cookies out there, and that's all you get to eat for the whole week. You would, you would be starving yourself, wouldn't you? But the same thing is true when it comes to our spiritual diet. It's by God's word that we feed ourselves spiritually, and it's by that that we can become strong and mature as Christians. And that's how God builds us, is how God grows us, as we get to know him more and know his ways more. And it's not just about being a hearer of the word, is it? A doer, yeah, it's being obedient to what his word has to say. So I have treasured your words. And Job goes on to say in the remainder of chapter 23, in essence, uh, speaking of the sovereignty of God. And as we come into chapter 24, we read, since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Now, that's a little bit challenging, I think, to understand. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? The New Living puts it like this, why doesn't the Almighty bring the wicked to judgment? Why must the godly wait for him in vain. And it's back to that same question, why are the wicked not punished? Why are they not punished right away? Job's friends are saying, the reason you're suffering is because you're wicked. And Job's response to this point has been, no, that's not the case. In fact, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the wicked prosper in this life and the righteous suffer. And so the question here is, why are the wicked not punished right away? And so he goes on to speak of things, and we'll go through uh, a few of these verses here as he speaks of the wicked in verse two. Some remove landmarks, they seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox as a pledge. They push the needy off the road. All the poor of the land are forced to hide. Indeed, and this is what I, I believe is taking place here in verse five. I believe he's starting to refer to the poor at this point, because notice he's just mentioned all the poor of the land are forced to hide. And then verse five, indeed, like wild donkeys in the desert, they go out to their work searching for food. The wilderness yields food for them and for their children. They gather their fodder in the field and glean in the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and huddle around the rock for want of shelter. So in just interpreting this chapter, it seems like he's speaking, this is what the wicked are doing. But then all of a sudden, as he speaks of them, spending the night in the cold, being naked, not having shelter, it's like he's shifted away from the wicked and he's expounding upon the poor that he brought up in verse four. But then he comes back to the wicked in verse nine. Some snatch the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge from the poor. They cause the poor to go naked without clothing and they take away the sheaves from the hungry. They press out oil within their walls and tread wine presses, yet 
suffer thirst. The dying groan in the city and the souls of the wounded cry out, yet God does not charge them with wrong. So the wicked are removing landmarks, stealing flocks, mistreating the orphan and widow and poor, and how come God doesn't charge them with wrong? And then he continues on as we just look at this chapter. Verse 13, there are those who rebel against the light. They do not know its ways nor abide in its path. The murderer rises with the light. He kills the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he disguises his face. In the dark they break into houses, which they marked for themselves in the daytime. They do not know the light. And so you get, kind of get the picture of the wicked doing their deeds at night, where darkness can cover their actions. Verse 17, for the morning is the same to them as the shadow of death. If someone recognizes them, they are in the terrors of the shadows of death, and hence why they do not like uh, the morning light, because they can be seen for what they're doing. And so he goes on to speak of the wicked, uh, that they should be cursed, but the reality is um, oftentimes the oppression hits the mighty. And then ending the chapter in verse 25, now, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and make my speech worth nothing? In other words, you know what I'm saying is true. It's not true that uh, the wicked are judged immediately. In fact, oftentimes the wicked prosper and the righteous are the ones that are being oppressed. And now in chapter 25, Bildad gives his last speech and you can look at how short chapter 25 is. It's, he just comes in for a little bit and then he's done. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? Gotta love the waxing eloquent with Bildad. You know, he speaks of God's greatness. <clears throat> and then of course, in comparison to man, and, and he seems to bring out, uh, how can he be pure who is born of woman? How can man be righteous before God? I mean, the reality is, is, is that of the fall. You see that in the terminology here, man is a sinner and so forth. But you can see the accusation as well. It's against what Job is saying. Hey, look, I've done nothing wrong. I, I, I hold to my righteousness. And he's saying, look, you're a maggot. You know, you're nothing before God. And, and that's it with Bildad. He's done, of course, Zophar's done. He's not going to, to uh, address Job anymore. And Job, as he speaks, you know, in one sense, he responds to them. And in another sense, he's, he's totally ignoring them. And he's just going off on, on this, man, this is, this is my life here. And if I had the opportunity to talk with God, and if God was here, he would prove me right because he knows. And it's true, God does know. And God's assessment of Job was he is a blameless man and he is upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. And Job knows that. And so he comes, continues to come back to this, but notice as he jumps in chapter 26. But Job answered and said, how have you helped? <laughs> you know, how has any of this helped me? How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? 
<laughs> yeah, I caught that too, yeah. I don't think that's God speaking to you. I think there's another spirit here. Again, how have they helped? They have been worthless physicians. They have been miserable comforters. And again, it's important to learn from this that in time of despair, as we can come alongside and help somebody out, we're to be, I, I like the idea of the ministry of presence. Yeah, I don't know what to say, but I'm here. I'm the shoulder to cry on. I wanna, I wanna just be here for you. And really the three friends, they shine the brightest when they said nothing in the beginning. You know, and sometimes that's the best thing we can do. Also remember from last week, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And, and those who love it will, will eat of its fruit. So we can speak those words that will bring healing and will bring life. We have the opportunity, the privilege to be able to do that. But we also uh, have the ability to speak words that would cut like a knife and just bring destruction into somebody else's life. And so a lot of good stuff that we can learn here on how to be there for one another. Job goes on to speak of the greatness of God in chapter 26, uh, verse five, the dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol, again, the, the grave, the place of the departed, Spirits is naked before him and destruction has no covering. Notice verse seven, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. I'm reading a commentary on uh, Job by Henry Morris. And Henry Morris was the, the um, founder of the Institute for Creation Research. He was a, a scientist. And if I remember, if I'm not getting my my people crossed. I believe he taught in the public school system or, or in the universities for, I think, something like 30 years and was a uh, just, I mean, he was knowledgeable. I don't want to say an expert, but he was knowledgeable in virtually all of the sciences. I mean, astronomy, uh, um, hydrology. I mean, he just goes through all of these different disciplines in science. And it's wonderful to read his commentary on the Bible because he brings so much of that in in the book of Job. Uh, that's one of the, I think, the highlights that he has in his commentary on Job. And, and the point he makes, like in verse 7, where he says the hang, he hangs the earth on nothing, the point that he brings up is you're going back to, again, the days of Job is going to be what? Like 1500 BC, 2000 BC, something like that. And uh, this is the comment that he made here. He hangs the earth on nothing, nothing except the mysterious force of gravity acting at a distance with the sun. This verse was written at least 3,500 years before Isaac Newton identified and described this force. So it's not technical science that we read right here, but it lines up with science. And I think that's kind of truth, kind of cool, especially considering the days that this lies in. And so there's a number of things, and I'll, I'm sure I'll bring up some more uh, next week is, as uh, Elihu speaks on the hydraulic, the, how, how the, the rains work and the clouds and things like that. It's really cool to see those little tidbits that we have. Now, admittedly, there are areas here where it, it will speak of the pillars of the earth. And I think oftentimes that's referring to the mountains that are, that are out there. So there is picturesque language that's being used, but there's also areas like this that, you know, we would just kind of look at as an aside. But uh, it's really cool when you think of the days and ages that it was written in. Um, he does mention in verse eight, he binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. It's kind of interesting to think about that, how you've got water. You know how heavy water is when you have like a five gallon bucket of liquid and you're trying to carry that around, that thing's pretty heavy. And yet you've got these 
clouds up there and you've got all this weight of water, but yet it's not falling down until, until the right time. And it's just really cool. It's really cool how God designed things, you know? And when you look out at the universe, you look at the moon and it's gray and, you know, you look at the, the, um, the pictures of the solar system and the planets, but then you look at, at the blue marble, you know, you look at earth and you just see how uh, wonderfully positioned this planet is for life. And it's just amazing as we dig into that and see how God created this. I mean, how can you get away from the fact that this is a creation? This has obviously been designed by a much higher intelligence. And it's just, doesn't it kind of kind of boost your faith there and going, okay, okay, I'm on the right track here. <laughs> I'm on the right track. So um, anyway, it's cool. Um, he mentions in verse eight again, he binds up the waters in his thick clouds, um, yet the clouds are not broken under it. Verse nine, he covers the faith of his face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. Verse 10, he drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. And so speaking of the arc of the earth, um, not a flat earth, but a, a sphere that's here all the way back in the book of Job. And so um, jumping ahead to chapter 27. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my justice and the almighty who has made my soul bitter. As long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not re reproach me as long as I live. He, means, he maintains his integrity. And again, this is what riled his friends so much. How can you, being a man, be righteous before God? And I think in the sense that Job is speaking it, he's just saying, look, I was the real deal. I was living my life uprightly before him, and I'm not going through all of this because of, of some sin or wickedness that is in my life. He continues on in the chapter speaking about there being no hope for the hypocrite if he had been a hypocrite. And he also speaks about the portion of the wicked. We're jumping ahead to chapter 28. And chapter 28, it, it begins in the, the first half of it, speaking about man seeking out the, the precious metals of the earth. Chapter 28, a couple of verses. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is, ta iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. And he goes on to speak about man, not just searching, but man finding gold and silver and iron, copper, precious stones. But jump ahead to verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man is searched and man is found the precious metals of the earth. But where can you find wisdom? Jump to verse 15. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. So where can you find it? It can't be purchased. Jump ahead to verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? You have to go all the way to the end of the chapter to find the answer. In verse 28. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. 
And it's, it's almost like right out of the Proverbs, right? I think this is why some people think, well, maybe Job was written, even if the events took place early on, maybe Job was written by Solomon or somebody because Solomon wrote many of the Proverbs and so forth. But rather than going that direction, maybe Solomon is looking back this direction and seeing what some of the things that, that Job is saying. And I know, you know, commentators can be divided when it comes to that. But let's look at a little bit of the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning from verse 13. Happy is the man. Oh, how blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. Wisdom is what is going to bring a blessing to our lives. Where can we find wisdom? The answer here in the end of Job 28 and also in Proverbs is in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's good to think about it, isn't it? What does that mean? Because it's very important, isn't it? Because the fear of the Lord is the starting point. It's the starting point to truly gain knowledge and the starting point to truly acquire wisdom. And once one has wisdom, as we saw in chapter three of Proverbs, happy is the man. You know, the blessed person is the one who's come across that wisdom. It begins by honoring God. It begins by respecting him. You know, I'll be honest with you. The translators chose the word fear for a a reason. You know, that is the the most popular and, and most accurate meaning of the word that's there. And so what does it mean to fear God? It means he's God and I'm not. He is so much greater than me. And it puts man in his place to truly honor and respect and stand in awe of who he is. And when we come to that place and position ourselves in that place, it's then that we truly can receive from him. And that truly is wisdom. That is a wise person that does that. So I want to hear from God. What do I do? James chapter one, verse five says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, we have so many decisions we face in this life. What, what am I going to do with this or this or this? I don't know what to do. Best thing to do is ask God. Secondly, it's to position yourself to hear from God. It's one thing to ask, but we've got to be in a position to hear. And the best way to be in a position to hear is to be in the right place in obedience with him, walking uprightly like Job. He's walking, you know, he's the real deal. That's the best way to be able to hear from God. But ask, what should I do, Lord? You know, and, and I didn't get an answer. Well, I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep it in prayer as I continue on and seek after uh, him and his direction for my life. So wisdom, key thing, and it comes by a tremendous reverence and respect for the Lord. Now in chapter 29, Job longs for how it used to be. Job further continued his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, 
as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and when by his light I walked through darkness. Just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me, you know, when he had his family, when he had his friends, when he had respect, when he had the presence of God, he goes on to say, and this is, I think this is the first time he really steps out and goes, look, you're accusing me of mistreating the poor, the widow and the orphan, but this is what I really did. And this is the chapter where he lays it down and, and says, I delivered the poor the orphan, the widow. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the poor, a rescuer. Men used to listen to me, but, jump to chapter 30, but now they mock at me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. These guys mock me. It's not just, they're not respecting their elder, the young people mocking me but it's the sons of those men who are so horrible, I wouldn't even put them with the dogs that are watching my flock. And these guys are now mocking me. And so Job goes on in chapter 30 to speak about how he's mistreated, how he cries out, but he's not hearing back from God. And he speaks of his suffering, his heart being in turmoil, his bones burning with fever. And if you jump to the end of chapter 30, verse 31, my harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. Remembering again that Job has lost his wealth, he's lost his children, he's lost his health, he's covered with boils from head to toe, he's in pain, he's had three acquaintances come and accuse him of being a wicked person, and he's holding fast his integrity, he's not sensing the presence of God, and he's enduring through all of this agony, mentally, physically, spiritually through this turmoil, and yet he's still holding strong to his faith in the Lord. He's in a trial, isn't he? He's in a difficult place, but he's trusting God. And I've said this before, but it's like real faith is trusting God even when you don't understand. God, I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why it's happening, but I'm trusting you because I know you are sovereign, and I know you are good, and I know you love me, and that's the best thing we can do. And that's, I think, what Job did. He really held fast to his faith as he went through all this. Now, we'll close it out with chapter 31 as Job wraps up his sayings here, and he, and he speaks here, again, how he had maintained his righteousness, and if he didn't and bad things were coming because of that, then, then come what may, that's what should happen. But he says, that's not what I was doing. He says in chapter 31, verse one, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. 
if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment, for that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. You see what he's saying here. If I have wronged others, then I deserve what I get. If I've gone after my neighbor's wife, then let my wife be taken by another. And I wanna take us back to verse one of chapter 31, where he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. He was intentional about what he did, what he looked at for purity's sake. I made a covenant, not just, well, oops, you know, I shouldn't have looked at that. Try not to look again. I made a decision, I was intentional. In Psalm 101 verse three, David says, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Jesus, when he was speaking about adultery, said, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guys and girls, especially in the day and age that we live in, we've gotta be intentional. You know, we, we can't just go through life without setting up boundaries and standards because there's so many things on our smart devices, on our TVs, on the billboards when we're driving down the road. We've gotta be intentional about what we're going to set before us. Otherwise, we open up a door and it does lead to destruction. Again, the whole principle of sowing and reaping, if we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. And we've gotta be really careful with all of that. And you've gotta admire Job here. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I'm intentional about this. Like I've made an agreement. I'm going to be careful who I look at and who, how, I, how I look at them. Amen? Amen? So he continues on through the chapter with the if then. If I've mistreated my servant or the poor, the widow, the orphan, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. If I've trusted in riches, if I've been unfaithful, rejoiced at others' misfortune or hidden my sin, then let judgment fall upon me. And we'll close it out beginning from verse 35 of chapter 31. Oh, that I had one to hear me. You can hear his longing for really for God to be there. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. The Hebrew letter is the tau right there, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Some translations translate that signature. I'm writing this thing down. I'm signing off on this, okay? I maintain my integrity, my righteousness. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. That's all, that's it. He closes it all out. If I'm that kind of guy that you say I am, then I'm deserving of judgment. But I'm signing this right now. I am holding fast to my integrity and I will never agree with the accusations that you're bringing. And this is it for him. I mean, we'll hear a couple of more words, but this is the end of the dialogue with him. Elihu will speak next and then God will speak after that. 
and we'll see it wrap up here in the next couple of weeks. But a couple of takeaways from just what we went through today, and it's kind of neat because we see these little uh, nuggets that we, we can draw from as we go through. One of them is the being tested and coming forth is gold. You know, we're gonna go through trials. We wanna pass the test. As we go through them, we wanna hold strong to our faith and our trust in the Lord. The other thing is about wisdom. You know, we need it. We need to know the right thing to do in our day and age. And so how do we find wisdom? It's by positioning ourselves before the Lord, honoring and respecting him and being obedient to him. And then finally, this last part about purity. Guys and girls, it's huge for all of us to make sure that we live the life. You know, not, not just when we're face to face with one another, but we live the life when we're behind closed doors. Always remembering that God sees not only what we're doing behind the closed doors, but he sees what's going on in here, in our minds, you know? <laughs> That's kind of overwhelming, isn't it, when you think about it? Let it be refreshing. Let it be something that motivates and encourages us to, to just be the real deal, 24-7, 365. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we wanna thank you for the time we can spend here in your word. Lord, you are good to us, and we rejoice in you. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to gather together as as the body of Christ, to lift up our hearts in worship, but, but really also to have them laid bare before you. And I pray, Father, that, that you would work inside of the hearts of each one of us to help us be the real deal, to be men and women who glorify you, especially when the trials come and the difficulties come. Help us to, to hang on to the truth that we do know, that you are good, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that in the end, all of this will be passed and that we will have moved on to the life that you truly have for us as we go to be with you for all eternity. We're so thankful for that. Father, I do wanna lift up those today whose hearts will be heavy, whose lives are in the midst of the challenges like we're reading about Job. And I just, we pray, we pray for them. We come alongside and wanna bear one another's burdens so fulfilling your law. And we pray for them and just pray, oh God, for comfort in their hearts today, for wisdom on decisions that need to be made and for joy deep down inside and the peace that passes all understanding. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. We can pray with you. Come forward after the service. Lord, thank you for the food we're gonna have later and uh, please stay and enjoy fellowship.